Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. We have all good martinis today. Good, good, and good across the board. Uh, let's dig right in. And, Jim, some tough love for NATO is paying off, at least according to the Trump administration. Adam Credo over at Free Beacon reports, quote, The Trump administration has made great strides in recent months to transform the cash-strapped and perpetually ailing North Atlantic Treaty Organization into a viable global military force that has the capabilities to confront Russia and other rogue regimes allied with terror forces. Vice President Mike Pence, in wide-ranging remarks on Wednesday before a gathering of NATO members in Washington, outlined a series of reforms the Trump administration has taken to boost NATO's military readiness and position it as a force that can combat Russian aggression, as well as that of regional terror groups. Pence told NATO members that the United States, quote, will no longer agree to any measures or treaties that force unilateral disarmament upon us, a direct reference to Russia's continued construction and use of missile systems that violate international arms treaties. This vision has guided the Trump administration's efforts to push NATO members into contributing greater financial resources to the organization, as well as recent efforts to create joint forces that can deploy to critical areas on the fly. Finally, Pence also took direct aim at Turkey, a NATO member that has bucked the organization by growing closer to Russia and purchasing Moscow's advanced missile systems. The Trump administration recently canceled the sale of advanced F-35 warplanes to Turkey as a result of this behavior, which Pence said is unacceptable. He also praised NATO for its role in helping to dismantle ISIS. So, Jim, I assume the uh, unilateral disarmament is a shot at the Obama administration for taking missile defense out of Eastern Europe about 10 minutes after they took office a decade ago. Uh, So obviously the the vice president's going to paint the best picture here, but there's been a lot of grumbling about the Trump approach to NATO. And if Pence is anywhere close to accurate here, it turns out that it might be working. It is. Maybe this is a justification for that good cop, bad cop approach. Trump is the bad cop complaining about them not spending enough money. There are times when the president talks about this. He really does seem to make it sound like there's some sort of bank account that the uh, NATO members are supposed to put money into. It's not that. It is actually a percentage of your GDP that the uh, NATO membership, and by the way, it's not like you get thrown out if you don't do that. It's just, that was just considered the general, 2% of GDP was considered a good general guideline of how much money a country should be spending on its defense and its defense forces in order to be uh, contributing its fair share to the, you know, collective effort to secure Europe and and North Atlantic. Um, One of the things I've been thinking about, but the reason I I said this should be a good martini today, Greg, think about where things were when Trump took office. And no doubt, Trump talks about NATO as if he's, you know, finds the whole thing a scam. Uh, he's very infuriated with it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, the idea we, we, you know, for two and a half years, we've had this argument of, oh, Trump is some sort of Russian ally or Russian uh, agent or something like that. Look, there are a lot of times Trump says things regarding Russia that can make a lot of Republicans cringe, groan, so make more, you know, uh, more vocal responses than that. His press conference with Putin was not good. But you look at the actual policies, as many Republicans have pointed out, they've actually been pretty darn tough, particularly in terms of sending arms to Ukraine and things like that. So if you'd said um, on Inauguration Day 2017, where do you think NATO is going to be in early 2019? How do you think Russia is going to be handling Ukraine uh, and, and things like that? People might have thought the, the situation would be way worse than it is right now. Is Russia still 
uh, messing with Ukraine? And is there still, you know, uh, use of mercenaries and, and uh, uh, military force without insignias and stuff like that on the eastern frontier of, of Ukraine? Yeah, yeah, that's definitely happening. But we've not seen anything quite like the rolling into um, Crimea the way we saw under the Obama administration. And, you know, as much as there's like as much as there's grumbling on the NATO alliance, if this has gotten everybody to start spending the money that they should be and to start upgrading their military forces and to start taking the uh, the threat of Russian military aggression more seriously, well, then it worked. Right. It was a very unorthodox way of going around it. But if the idea if it's if Trump sitting around griping about the NATO alliance made everybody else who kind of been neglecting the NATO alliance recognize how important it is, then actually good, something good has come out of this. So um, I think, look, all, if everything Pence is saying is accurate, is a good sign. I think it's safe to say that as much as the president might be, you know, fuming about NATO on on Twitter and his personal remarks, the policies of this administration and the policies of this Congress. Uh, to strengthen the NATO alliance, to make sure that it is completely up to the task of dealing with any military threat that comes from Russia or from ISIS or from other terrorist groups and things like that. And, uh, you know, that's a, that's a good sign. Um, and so there's some nice signs of progress, even though it doesn't always get the headlines, Greg. Jim, a quick follow-up, because I know this will only take a, a simple 30-second response. What do we do about Turkey? Uh, because, <laughs> because they're they're kind of flouting the rest of the alliance here. They're cozy enough to Russia when the rest of the alliance, of course, was created to to resist Moscow. Um, uh, can they stay in the fold? Do we do we give them a little time to get their act together, or do we have to find a way to kick them to the curb here? Um, you want the thirty second version? Huh? Okay. Um, <laughs> it, it is worth noting they had local elections in Turkey. Uh, probably about a week or two ago. I guess it was last weekend. And I don't follow Turkish news nearly as much as I used to, but the party that is Erdogan's, AK, the Justice and Development Party, um, when I say AK, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not scoffing. I'm not making a sound. It's the, the abbreviation is AKP. Um, they have, uh, they had some, they had a setback. They lost the, the mayorality of Ankara. Uh, it was basically the equivalent of local elections, but that party didn't do as well. And it might be an indicator that, uh, so I was over in Turkey from 2005 to 2007. He'd been elected, I want to say 2003 or something like that. Now, look, the criticisms of Erdogan are all accurate. He is an autocrat. He is much more pro-Islamist than traditional Turkish leaders. He has had a crackdown on the free press. He did use the uh, unsuccessful coup against him to basically lash out at anybody who was a potential threat or potential uh, uh, you know, threat to his power. You know, but there's some indication that maybe the, Tur- the Turks are starting to get tired of this. There's some indication that maybe they realize that he has not delivered uh, this grand utopia that he has been promised. He, look, he's been a remarkable survivor. Um, we're coming up, I guess, now on 16 years of him being in power, which is, you know, not uh, a good one. But there, there's an interesting sense that maybe he's there's some there's some cracks in the edifice of Ak that there weren't there a year or two ago. Um, some of this may be related to the state of the economy. Some of this may be related to this sense. I mean, back when I was over there, the Turks were convinced they were going to get into the European Union any day now. Um, and obviously, that did not happen. And there is a good reason for that kind of skepticism. But the sense that uh, uh, their attitude was, well, Europe doesn't want us. We're going to go find our future elsewhere. And that may explain some of the outreach to, to Russia and things like that. Um, look, it's, it's a thorny problem. It's been a thorny problem for a long time. But I do think that Erdogan's days are numbered. And the question is, does he have a, a lot more days left or does he have only a few more days left? My suspicion is whoever follows may be a little bit easier to work with than, than Erdogan has been, who's been a particularly wily um, and effective and shrewd guy who wanted to push Turkey in an in Islamist direction. That's about as succinct as you can do, Turkey. I yeah. think that's very, very good. <laughs> 
All right, let's go to our second good martini now. And, Jim, it is the first Friday of the month, and that means 8.30 Eastern. Everybody's very excited to see what the Labor Department unemployment report has to say. Here's CNBC. We apologize ahead of time. Uh, The reporter here, I believe, is at the Labor Department. It sounds like she's in the middle of Penn Station. But uh, here's here's the uh, facts on the new jobs report. Non-farm payrolls rose by 196,000 jobs in March. The unemployment rate unchanged at 3.8 percent. Average hourly earnings, they were up four cents in March to 27.70. That's a 0.1 percent gain over the month and a 3.2 percent gain over the year. The payroll numbers for January and February were both revised upward from 311,000 to 312,000 in January and from 20,000 to 33,000 in February. Together, that's 14,000 more jobs than were previously reported. The three-month moving average is 180,000 jobs. So they beat expectations, Jim. Nearly 200,000 jobs created uh, non-farm in March. Uh, the unemployment rate stays the same. The so-called real unemployment rate, the uh, the U6, which factors in people who have left the labor force, that's also unchanged at 7.3%. Wages tick up. Not necessarily a, a jobs report that we're going to do cartwheels over, but a lot of folks uh, I, I've seen in, in looking at some financial stories online suggest that this is proof, especially after a, a pretty weak jobs uh, report in February. It's a pretty good sign that we're not necessarily headed into the recession that everybody thought we were. Yeah, I, I guess the the best way of saying why this is a good martini is last week, last month's jobs report was really not that good, just barely in the positive range. And, uh, you know, we, we've had a long stretch of job creation and, and gradu- first gradual, and now I think you could argue accelerating growth. And there was kind of this nagging sense of, well, every good time has to come to an end. Every period of economic boom has to come to an end. You know, are we overdue? Are we, you know, living on borrowed time, so to speak? Um, and, you know, last few months numbers really kind of, I don't necessarily freaked people out, but it really was the first not good indicate jobs report we got. Well, now the jobs, the numbers have been revised up, which is nice. Um, what's kind of interesting is you could try to look at the June 2017. Um, it, up prior to June 2017, it looked like the economy was, it was still adding jobs, but at a slower pace. Uh, it's actually now increasing. Um, at a slightly faster pace, which is nice. I know that the administration's had a big argument about because of uh, the, the GDP growth came in at around just under 3% and Trump had promised 3%. They've been playing with the numbers and trying to measure it at different points. They say, well, actually, really, it's 3. If you hold it up to the light and you turn it this way and you, you unfocus your eyes like in those magic eye posters and say, it looks like 3.1%. 2.6% growth in the last quarter really is not that bad even considering you had the government shut down. Um, you had a little bit of a market instability towards the end of yes, last year. There were a couple of things that would make you a little bit nervous about the state of, state of the economy. This, the, if I had to pick one word to describe today's jobs report, it's reassuring. Um, now, look, let's face it. This is there the reasons that uh, Republicans might still be sweating. Uh, the economy was doing pretty darn well last November, and they still had terrible losses in the House. Uh, did okay in the Senate, but. Uh, uh, you know, the, the, that sense of, you know, the, the president and the president's party do not seem to be getting a great deal of the benefits of a good and booming economy. An interesting question will be, if the economy does not do well between now and 2020, how much blame does the president get? Um, but all in all, look, this is kind of the economy you'd want to have a little bit of dispute about wage growth and maybe a little bit of concern about inflation and things like that. But by and large, this is a very healthy economy. And that's good news for everybody, not just uh, the right or the conservatives or GOP. All good points and obviously very good news to see the numbers heading uh, much more in the right direction than they did back in February. It'll be interesting to see, though, Jim, even if they can 
keep these numbers going roughly at this pace or something close to it, uh, how much that's actually going to make a difference uh, in the election. Uh, we'll probably dig into this more at another time. And I'm just very curious to see, kind of like the Mueller report, how you look at the economy. Does it actually impact or does it actually change what you think of the Trump administration if you're already not bought in uh, to Donald Trump in this four years and possibly for the next four years? If you really don't like him, uh, does the fact that the Mueller report essentially clears him or the fact that the economy is humming along really change much in your estimation of who you're going to vote for in, in 2020? Because uh, so far, when you look at his approval numbers, very little changes regardless of what is going on in the headlines. And I have reason to believe it might not change that much, uh, even if the economy is still trucking along pretty good here. But we will see. All right, let's move on to our final good martini now. And Jim, the Republicans have their eyes on a Senate seat potentially because Joe Manchin, one of the last sane Democrats in the U.S. Senate, has decided that he's kind of tired, perhaps, of being the last sane Democrat in the United States Senate. Politico, just five months off the race of his life, Joe Manchin is mulling a run for governor in 2020 against Republican Governor Jim Justice. The Democratic senator said in an interview Thursday that he's once again, quote, thinking about running for the best job in the world, governor of West Virginia. Quote, I think about it every minute of every day. Now thinking about it and doing it are two different things, Manchin said. I'll make a decision this fall sometime. I don't think there's any hurry at all. Manchin narrowly won re-election last year against Republican Attorney General Patrick Morrissey, a 3% point victory in a state President Donald Trump won by 42 points in 2016. Manchin, who already served as West Virginia's governor from 2005 to 2010, largely relied on his retail politicking, help from Democratic outside groups, and an aisle-crossing record to defeat Morrissey. So, Jim, there's a couple different calculations here. First of all, it's kind of nice to have one Democrat who might join you on something, although if you have a Republican, they're even more likely to join you. Uh, So there's that. Uh, He also would have to run as a Democrat with Trump on the ballot as a Republican, which could be a little bit complicated. Justice's approval numbers uh, as of January, 45 percent approval, 38 percent disapproval. So not great, but not terrible. So what do you make of Manchin looking to get out of Dodge? You know, Greg, I was was thinking back to the Bush years when Lincoln Chafee was technically a Republican from uh, Rhode Island. And he would ally with the Democrats on some initiative of, you know, Bush's terrible act of 2005 or something like that. <laughs> and they'd say this, you know, this proposal to flog the president has bipartisan support. And of course, it was, you know, Lincoln Chafee, who, who was, you know, effectively a Democrat, very liberal, not you know. I'm sure Democrats feel the same way about Joe Manchin when you and I would say, you know, look, uh, Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed with a bipartisan majority. Uh, <laughs> Right. You know, he's yes, he's a Democrat. Yes, there are certain issues in which he will vote with the Democratic Party, but he is the one who is most likely to defect on any given issue. Uh, So if you're the Republicans, on the one hand, losing Manchin, you lose you lose that ability to say, oh, we've attracted bipartisan support by plucking the lowest hanging fruit in the U.S. Senate. Um, On the other hand, I think if you're Democrats, you're more frustrated by this because you just put in a considerable amount of effort uh, to make sure that he was reelected last year. But I also think one of the lessons of 2018 West Virginia Senate race, uh, Patrick Morrissey, I think, was a perfectly fine candidate. The fact that he did not do this was really never one of the Republicans put a lot of resources into it. They put a lot of efforts into it. They they had high hopes. But in the end, Joe Manchin is very popular in his state. He he has his finger on the pulse. So being a conservative Democrat is, is something most West Virginia voters are pretty comfortable with. 
And I also had this nagging question of wondering, you know, because Joe Manchin was no doubt Donald Trump's favorite Democrat, um, you know, just how eager was Donald Trump to see Joe Manchin get defeated in 2018? So if you're Republicans, you look at 2018 and you say, you know, Joe Manchin's going to be there as long as he wants to be there. Um, this is not going to be a guy who's ever going to get that easy to vote to, to, to vote out of office unless he suddenly, you know, suddenly starts making terrible decisions that uh, alienate his voters and he really does go Washington and all that kind of stuff. Um, the moment Manchin said he was voting for Brett Kavanaugh, I think it was my colleague Ramesh Panuru who said every Republican was, was thrilled except for Patrick Morrissey, <laughs> right? who had really been hoping to use this issue to run against uh, Joe Manchin. So look, I mean, right now the, the current governor, uh, I believe it's Jim Justice of West Virginia, is a former Democrat who could change to the Republican Party. Um, you know, if you're, if you're the Republican Governors Association, yeah, you're going to try to beat uh, Joe Manchin if he runs for governor. But you know, you're going to get a guy who's not going to be all that, you know, a hard left liberal. You're not going to have somebody like that elected in the state of West Virginia. And now the National Republican Senatorial Committee looks at that and says, all righty, now we've got a real chance here in West Virginia uh, of winning a Senate seat. And that would, you know, hold it for quite some time. And the other thing, which is kind of, you know, which probably has Democrats, you know, more than a little, you know, grumbling this morning is that sense of, wait a second, we just went through a lot of effort to reelect this guy for a full six year term. After two years, he wants to go off and be governor. <laughs> What was all that effort for if you're going to walk away? So uh, we'll see how things shake out. I think if you're a Republican, uh, you don't mind this development one bit. Yeah, you're probably going to get, you know, if, if, if Joe Manchin chooses to run for governor, he's got a very good chance uh, uh, of winning. West Virginians have been casting ballots for him for a very long time. Um, but you have the chance of replacing him with a, uh, you know, Republican senator who will be there for six years and solidifies uh, what could end up being the backstop. Uh, against a Democratic president at a Democratic House is by having a slightly larger uh, uh, Republican Senate majority. So we'll see how things shake out, Greg. But uh, all things considered, that's not the, this is not the worst possible development in West Virginia politics. Now, the downside is, is that if he wins, I believe he gets, according to Politico anyway, he gets to appoint his successor. And therefore, there would not be an open election till 2022. Uh, so there probably would be a Democratic senator at least till then, you would guess. And uh, Jim, I would guess Manchin is the favorite based on everything you've said about his long track record and being a fairly conservative Democrat. The wild card, of course, though, is, hey, if if anybody who tried to unseat Joe Manchin maybe last time but didn't get the nomination thinks about throwing his hat into the ring this time with his whirling dervish of raw political charisma, that being Don Blankenship, uh, we could have a lot more fun with this race. I don't want Tom Blankenship to run for the Senate or run for any other office. I just want him to pick nicknames. <laughs> Stick to your core competency. You, that was a great, the gift that keeps on giving from 2018. Um, what you're saying about appointing a successor is true. I also put, you still get, you're still getting a shot at that seat two years earlier than you otherwise would. Yes. Um, which is, you know, a, a, something of an advantage. Um, and again, also my, my suspicion is that this is the sort of thing that kind of uh, exacerbates the tensions in uh uh, the Democratic Party. I'm sure there were more than a few progressive activists who were grumbling that when they donated to Democrats in 2018, some of the money was going to Manchin, uh, who would end up, you know, voting for Kavanaugh, which they had established as their line in the sand. So, look, it's going to take very different uh, political stances and skills to win in Brooklyn than compared to winning in, in West Virginia. Uh, and it's always kind of fun to see the Democrats running into that and uh, experiencing that uh, that frustration. So we'll see how things shake out. But, uh, you know, again, if Blankenship could just, you know, you know what? Blankenship should get a job in the Trump administration. <laughs> just coming up with nicknames for all. Actually, no, he shouldn't do that because as I say, he should come up with nicknames for all the Democratic candidates. Um, but the problem is that Cocaine Mitch is so awesome, it kind of makes Mitch sound more awesome. 
that's the advice I'd have to give to – actually, I don't even want to give them the advice because it's, it's backfiring every time. So, yeah, Don Blankenship called Mitch McConnell cocaine Mitch, which, which we've had more fun with perhaps than anything else in the history of this podcast. And then uh, Mitch McConnell led the effort to, to change debate times this week to uh, stop the obstruction process on, on lower nominees. And Dick Durbin and others on the Democratic side are calling him nuclear Mitch. And I'm like – you guys aren't making your case here. You're just giving him really cool nicknames every time you're frustrated with this guy. Nuclear Mitch sounds like a really awesome superpower, superhero. <laughs> Dear God, run, it's Nuclear Mitch. <laughs> All right, Jim, have a good weekend. See you Monday. See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today and tune in again on Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch.